Shavua Tov. We are on the very top of 20A, Chafamad Aleph. Um, we're in the middle of talking about a Nazir, a Nazarite. And we concluded, Aval Metamehu Lameis Mitzvah, that a Nazarite can uh, defile himself by coming in contact with a Meis Mitzvah. That's somebody who has no one, a corpse that has no one else to bury them. A Nazir can go ahead and bury them even though there is a general rule that a Nazar is not allowed to come in contact with the dead. Amai, now why would we say that he's allowed to bury them? Seemingly what we see here is, is human dignity trumps the biblical commandment of a Nazar not being allowed to come in contact with the dead. But why would we allow this? Lema, ein chachma ve'ein tvuna ve'ein eitzel eneged Hashem. Shouldn't we say there's no such thing as wisdom or or intelligence, or counsel before God, and therefore human dignity, our concept, conception of human dignity, should not trump a biblical commandment. So we answer, shiny hasam There it's different. The case of a Nazar is different because it says, and to your sister, and to your sister teaches us that God is telling us that a Nazir can come in contact uh, cannot come in contact with his sister's dead body, but can, can come in contact with a mace mitzvah, a dead body that um, no one else will bury it. But then we ask the question, Mina, but why don't we learn from here? Mina, so why can't you learn from here in this scenario where God says that human dignity does trump when do we learn from here the fact that God says human dignity is going to trump a biblical a biblical injunction against the Nazir defiling himself from a dead body? Why don't you learn from here then that God believes that human dignity should always trump biblical commandments? So we answer Sheva Altasa Shiny. This is a bit of an interesting concept. Sheva Altasa means that this is passive. Here, when the Nazir goes and um, buries the dead body, he passively, he's not actively, he's passively becoming impure. So in a case where someone's passively becoming impure, you cannot learn from there to other cases where you're actively going to be breaking a biblical commandment. So that's why we can't learn to anywhere else from here to teach that human dignity would mean that you're allowed to break a biblical commandment. This is a concept that comes up a lot in the Talmud. Now we are at the um, the colon, uh, four lines down. Amar le Rav Papa Abaye. So this is a bit of a new thing. Rav Papa asked Abaye, "My shnari shonim this rachesh lehunisa." This is a question that I get often. What, what what's the reason that earlier the earlier generations saw open miracles? My anan, whereas us the lomis rachesh lehunisa, we don't get to see these open miracles. What's the difference? If it's because of their learning, that their learning was better than ours, but that can't be. Their Torah learning was better than ours, that can't be. In the days of Rav Yehuda, all of their learning was only in one Seder, only in one order of Talmud, which was the order of Nezikin, all about damages, all a lot of civil law. Vanan, whereas us and our generation, Kamasnin and Shisei Sidra, we involve ourselves in the learning of all six orders of the Talmud, of the Mishnah. So our learning is better. So you can't say it's because their learning was better they got to see the open miracles. 
Furthermore, and furthermore, when Rabbi Yehuda would reach this very difficult part of tractate Uksin, tractate Uksin is one of the, is a tractate that deals with uh, ritual impurity. Um, Tlesar, um, sorry, when he, they when um, they would reach the part of Uksin of Haisha Shekoveshes Yerek Bikadera, a woman who was uh, pickling, basically pickling a vegetable in a pot. Some say it was the part that discussed a um, olives pickled with their leaves. Tehorim, and it was the 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 conclusion was is that it's pure. We're not going to get into what exactly these laws were, but the response to learning these laws was Amar Rav Haha. They would say that here we see the back and forth of Rav and Shmuel. In other words, what they would say in the earlier generations when they reached these very complicated laws is these are just disputes between Rav and Shmuel, and that was how they would leave it. They wouldn't get involved into deciding what the halacha was, what the Jewish law would say as a conclusion. They would, wouldn't get into it. It was too complex for them. Whereas us, whereas us, whereas us, we go through Uxin, we go through this tractate, 13 sittings, meaning we really spend time on it, we get to the bottom of it, we come out with, with final conclusions. So again, our learning is even better than the learning of the earlier generation. Furthermore, and yet, and yet, even though our learning seems to be better, whereas Rav Yehuda, when he would pray, Rav Yehuda, when he would call a fast to pray for rain to fall, all he would need to do was take off one of his shoes. That was a way to get into the more mourning type of way, the fasting. You would remove your shoes. Um, the moment he removed one of his shoes, the rain would start to fall when there was a drought in Israel or there was a drought uh, wherever Rabbi Yehuda lived. Um, whereas us, whereas us, it's so different. Ba'anan, us, kamitz arena nafshin, when we... We really pain ourselves. We put in tons and tons of energy. And we scream and cry out. The less the Mishkach, and no one seems to notice us. No one seems to listen to us. Why are we, why in this later generation do we not get to see um, open miracles? So Amar Leh, so by answer to Rav Papa. The earlier generations, they would sacrifice their lives to... Um, kedusha to to uh, to making sure that they would sanctify God's name. Anan lo Whereas us, we do not. So we don't sacrifice our lives. We don't completely give us ourselves to make sure that we sanctify God's name. And now we're going to give an example. Kihadar of Ada Bar Ava, like the case of Ada Bar Ava. He one time saw a non-Jewish woman who was wearing, now he didn't know he, she was non-Jewish. She happened to have been non-Jewish. He actually thought she was Jewish. And she was wearing this outer cloak um, that was made up um, of wool and linen. And this is what she was wearing in the marketplace. Savar de Bas Yisraeli. He thought that she was Jewish. 
So he got up and he ripped the cloak from her because he thought that here was a Jewish woman wearing a cloak of wool and linen. And he went and um, he, he, uh, he ripped it off of her in order to keep her from sinning. In other words, he was standing up for God's name, even though it was at a great sacrifice for him, because if you do something like that, you will probably be arrested and taken to court. And that's exactly what happens. And that's exactly what happened. It then became clear that she wasn't Jewish. And the court actually assessed that he had to pay 400 zuz, which is a lot of money. Omar lay and he said to her, I guess this was his way of uh, apologizing, making small talk or something. Omar lay, ma shemeich, he said to her, what is your name? Omar lay, she said to him, masun. She said to him, my name is masun. Omar la, masun, masun, arba mea zuze shavya. He said, masun, masun. Um, so he said, masun plus masun. So that was her name, plus masun. Um, Masun in Aramaic means 200, so her name was 200, and he basically said Masun plus Masun equals 400. That was, I guess he was, I don't know, making some sort of joke, hoping that he would, for, she would forgive him. But what we do see is that the earlier generation was ready to sacrifice themselves to stand up for God's name. Um, that's a bit more of a complicated story, obviously. Um, things must have been different. Um, well, we could talk about it at a different time. Rav Gidel have a... Um, and this was a, another example of a person who was willing to sacrifice for the, of themselves in order to stand up for God's name. Rav Gidel have a ruggle to have a ka'azl v'yasev ashari de tefila. Rav Gidel, he used to um, sit at the gates of the mikvah, the gates of the place of the uh, of of the um, of the ritual bath. Amr luhu hachi tevilu v'hachi tevilu. And he would sit there and he would tell the women going in, this is how you're supposed to immerse and this is how you're supposed to immerse. Amr le Rabbanon and the, his, uh, basically the sages said to him, Kamistafi mar mi hara. And um, they said to him, um, Master, aren't you afraid of the evil inclination? You're dealing with women at this very sensitive time. Isn't, aren't you afraid of the evil inclination getting in your way? And he answered to them, They seem to me like white geese, meaning I'm not, I don't get, um, I don't, I'm not sensitive to these, to these women for how, whatever reason the evil inclination would not, did not, um, did not affect him in this type of way. But what we do see is that he looked like a, he looked like, he looked ridiculous. He was degrading himself by standing in front of the mikvah, telling them how to, obviously not inside of the mikvah, but at the gates of the mikvah, telling them how to, what to be doing. It was a very degrading thing to do. And yet he was willing to do this in order that they make sure, in order to make sure that they would immerse themselves properly. In other words, standing up for God's name. These are, these stories are obviously um, a bit difficult to relate to. Rabbi Yochanan have a ragel to have a ka'azlov, another case. Rabbi Yochanan would go and sit at the gate of the mikvah. He would say that this way the um, the Jewish women, they would come out after having gone to the mikvah. They'll look at me. And he was known to be the most handsome man in the world. And when they look at me and then they go home and reunite with their husbands, um, they will, um, they'll be, they'll, I will have been the last thing that they saw, someone very beautiful, very handsome. And the children that they conceive from those reunions will be beautiful like me.
So the rabbi said to him, Aren't you afraid of the evil eye? Meaning people looking at you. Isn't there? Isn't this the possibility of an evil eye coming here? That you're kind of like putting yourself out there in a way that's uh, flattering to yourself. Wouldn't that uh, attract the evil eye? The evil eye is another very interesting concept. We won't talk much about it right now. So what was his answer? He said to them, No, I am from the offspring of of Yosef. I'm a direct descendant of Yosef, our early uh, early forefather, De Inabisha, that we know about him, that the evil eye had no power over him. As the verse says, the verse says that Ben Poras Yosef, Ben Poras Ayin. The literal translation being, Joseph is a bountiful vine, bountiful vine, a bountiful vine on a spring. Ayin is a spring, but the word ayin also means an eye. Ale um, can mean like a, a, a leaf, but it can also mean above. And then what Rabbavo was saying, if Amar Rabbavo, Rabbavo would say, Don't read it as ale ayin. Rather read it as ole ayin, which means above the eye. In other words, the evil eye, the Yosef, would transcend an evil eye, and so too would his offspring. Rabbi Yossi b'Rabbi Chanina, Amar Mayhacha. Rabbi Yossi b'Rabbi Chanina would say, um, "This is the proof to show us that um, that Yosef did not receive the evil eye; that the evil eye had no power over him." The verse says, "V'yidgu larov b'kerev haaretz." So this was Yaakov. Jacob was blessing the sons of Yosef. And part of the blessing was, and may they multiply in the midst of the earth. And if you take a look at the word multiply, the root of the word is dalid gimel, which is the same word as fish, dag. And the idea is, the, the, the allegory here is, or the, the idea that we're learning, the exposition, just like fish in the water, um, they're covered by the water. The, just like fish in the water, the waters cover them. The ain ayin harashalatisbahem, and they're covered, they're concealed, and therefore the evil eye cannot have power over them. Avzaroshal Yosef. So too, the children and the offspring of Yosef ain ayin harashalatisbahem. The evil eye will not have power over them. The bias amen. If you want to say, there's another explanation or another uh, source for where we see that Yosef, or why Yosef didn't, was above the evil eye. The idea is, is, the eye of Yosef, who refused to feast on that which was not his. In other words, there's the story in the Torah of um, Potiphar, Yosef's master at one point, his wife trying to seduce Yosef, his beautiful wife trying to seduce Yosef, and no matter what she did, he would not give in. So he did not feast on that which was not his. And his eye would not, um, his eye would not, his eye would not give in to that which was not his. Um, and the so his reward was in ayin harash let us bow. The evil eye would not have power over him. And that leaves us on the last line of Chafa Medalifa in 20a. We'll stop here for today. Um, we talked. We finished talking about at the top. We finished talking about human dignity and it's. Um, it does it trump biblical law? Um, we decided that it doesn't. Then we talked about why miracles happen to the earlier generations and not to the later generations, and we spoke about giving, sacrificing yourself for the name of God. That was what made the difference. We gave some stories about that. 
Um, then we talked about the stories of the rabbis that would sit at the entrance to the mikvahs, to the mikvah. Um, and we finished off with talking about the evil eye and why the evil eye would not impact Yosef or Yosef's um, offspring after him. Um, have a great night and um, we'll talk next time.